and he suggested an authoritative translation of the Septuagint, thus creating what later became known as the Vulgate. Of course, calling it a translation of the Septuagint, I think, is a little bit simple because St. Saint, Saint Jerome actually used Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew of the Old Testament. He compared it against the Septuagint. Uh, to avoid an obvious misunderstanding, this transition was by no means an attempt to introduce the colloquial language into the liturgy. Driven by the pursuit of comprehensibility for all, in other words, it wasn't like a Novus Ordo reform of the liturgy that happened in the uh, in the uh, fourth century. The colloquial, uh, okay, the Latin of the earliest known liturgical prayers was not the spoken Latin language, but a classical. Latin, in places almost an archaic Latin, which was characterized by borrowings from the already religiously influenced official language of the imperial court and of the art of the rhetors. Now, I'm going to be doing a lot of asides as I'm going, as is my custom whenever I read a text on my, one of my shows. What are the rhetors? Well, we, we know the um, art and science of uh, persuasive, or the, rather the art of persuasive speech is called rhetoric, right? The rhetor, or the rhetorician, we, we, call, the, we call it a rhetorician in English, but the rhetor is the Latin name uh, for somebody who practiced the art of rhetoric. And part of the art of rhetoric was not simply uh, a very lofty mode of speech, um, again, almost like an archaic language, an, an official language to be used for formal functions. It was not the language of the streets. Uh, part of it was also, and this is an interesting part of the study of the history of the Roman Rite, part of uh, the use of rhetoric was the, stu- the study and the practice of gesticulations, proper gesticulations. Uh, you know, there there are jokes about the way Italians talk. You know that if you tied up their hands, they'd be they'd be mute because they can't talk without moving their hands. Well, take the the sort of lowbrow hand motions of uh, say a New York Italian when he's very animated about something, and polish it up and make it Ciceronian, and you end up with the gesticulations I'm talking about. The, the, the Rator, because he was speaking live in front of an audience, he wasn't mic'd like I am and, and being heard d- disembodied, as I will be later when you're listening to this, uh, they were speaking live. They were speaking to a live audience. Uh, and part of the art of convincing or persuasive speech was to move one's hands in a proper way. And one of the points, I remember when I was first learning about the traditional Mass, one of the points of contrast instantly you're going to notice is all of the crosses, all the genuflections, all the crosses, all the 14 times the priest looks up to the, to the crucifix, although that, that's a little more subtle from the point of view of those in the congregation, the crosses aren't. The priest, especially since they're in the Missal, right? If you're following along with your Missal, you're going to see all these crosses interspersed in the text. And what made what was really curious to me was this this thing. I could understand that when it was just bread, like at the offertory, or right before consecration, that the priest would would be putting crosses over, it, like blessing the bread, because it's just bread. What I didn't understand was why the priest was still making signs of the cross over the bread 
which is no longer bread, over the consecrated species, right, over the bread of life, over the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord. It looked to me, and of course, this is my ignorance speaking at the time, it looked to me almost, uh, well, incongruous at the very least, almost even sacrilegious for a, a mere man, though a priest, a mere man, to be blessing our Lord. It just didn't seem right. So when I was when I was learning about this, uh, learning about the liturgy more, uh, I came to learn that well, these are basically Ciceronian gesticulations. The priest was pointing at it, but he wasn't pointing at it in a rude way, uh, and he wasn't pointing at it in a pagan way or in a secular way or in the way one might be making his points, gesticulating. On the streets, it was basically baptized Ciceronian rhetoric. It was a cross instead of just a finger being pointed or a hand being waved or a you know the 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 five di- the five fingers of the hand being kind of directed towards it as you see some of the gestures in the Eastern liturgies, for instance, where the whole hand you know you, the priest just holds his hand out flat and and points towards the species. Uh, it's a different thing. And it was this was a very Roman ethic. This is a very Roman style, you might say. And yeah, the liturgy is enculturated. Don't let anybody say the church never had enculturation. Many of the rituals uh, and signs and symbols from the imperial courts were, were brought into the liturgy. By the way, that's the same in the East, and that explains much of the difference between the Byzantine liturgy and the Latin liturgy when you realize that the Byzantine court had a lot of different things that it did, that it used, different signs and symbols, and a lot of that got imported into the uh, the Byzantine rite. Uh, but to, to end this particular digression, the crosses over the already consecrated species are far from, from blasphemous, and they're certainly not incongruous. It's the priest pointing to these things, but he's pointing in a Catholic way with crosses. Okay, to continue with the article of Monsieur Chalier, even in these earliest times, it was generally believed that the Roman liturgy had its origins in the time of the apostles. Differences between the liturgies of the different patriarchates were not perceived as problematic, as these patriarchates trace themselves back to the different apostles as the founders of their own traditions. Now, what are these patriarchates that he, that he speaks of here? And this is not a bad uh, subject to undertake uh, here, a nice little tangent. Um, the patriarchates uh, are, first of all, there were three patriarchates at one point, uh, and then we get the five patriarchates that come later. So from the Catholic Encyclopedia article, Patriarch and Patriarchate, um, the oldest canon law admitted only three bishops as having what later ages called patriarchal rights, the bishops of Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch. The successor of St. Peter, as a matter of course, held the highest place and combined in his own person all dignities. He was not only bishop at Metropolitan, primate and patriarch, Metropolitan of the Roman province, primate of Italy, and the first of the patriarchs. As soon as a hierarchy was organized among bishops, the chief authority and dignity was retained by the Bishop of Rome. Uh, 
Uh, skipping down before the Council of Nicaea in 325, two bishops in the east had the same patriarchal authority over large territories, those of Alexandria and Antioch. It is difficult to say exactly how they obtained this position. The organization of provinces under metropolitans followed as a matter of obvious convenience the organization of the empire arranged by Diocletian. In this arrangement, the most important cities in the east were Alexandria of Egypt and Antioch of Syria. So the Bishop of Alexandria became the chief of all of the Egyptian bishops and metropolitans. The Bishop of Antioch held the same place over Syria and at the same time extended his sway over Asia Minor, Greece, and the rest of the east. Now, it's interesting to note that uh, there's something providential in this arrangement because when you look at those three ancient patriarchates of Rome, um, Alexandria and Antioch, by the way, in that order, Rome first, then Alexandria, then Antioch. That's the hierarchical order. Um, when you look at this, it's the three continents that were uh, the inhabited continents of the then known Ecumene, the, uh, the um, inhabited world, once we get ecumenical council. Uh, but also, it's the three continents that represent the three sons of Sem. Or rather, the three sons of Noah. So there'd be Sem, uh, from whence come the Semites, Cam, uh, from whence come the Camites, uh, and Yapheth, the Yaphethites, who are basically the lighter-skinned peoples of the northern regions. Uh, uh, if you're European, then you're going to be uh at least mostly, Yaphethite. Huh? So uh, there's something, um, you know, the, the, the three continents that touch on the Mediterranean basin, right? This is where the faith initially sp- spread. Because when we look at Alexandria, of course, that's in Africa, right? People forget. They think of, oh, Egypt's in the Middle East. Yeah, it's in Africa. Um, and Alexandria then represents a- Africa. Antioch represents Asia. And, um, of course, Rome, Europe. So they all touch in the Mediterranean landmass, and those three cities aren't terribly far uh, from each other. Now, so those are the three patriarchates. By the way, later on, we're going to get uh, the, the era of the five patriarchates um, when Jerusalem is added, which in the early days of Christianity, Jerusalem was a, 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 an obscure pagan Roman city called Aelia. And later on, uh, under, on the, under the time of Constantine, it, it starts to rise in importance. And then later, later still, we get the, um, the, the Constantinople added as a, a patriarchate. And eventually, it, it races up just beneath um, Alexandria to be the, the second patriarchate. So in Eastern um, ecclesiology, both among the Eastern rights of the Catholic Church, and more especially among the Orthodox uh, schismatics, the five patriarchates are extremely important to their ecclesiology. Uh, and it's not the kind of thing that we can just easily dismiss. Um, and it's something that they very much appreciate. In fact, many um, Orthodox churches and even Catholic Uniate churches have five uh, spires on them representing, or, or domes, representing the uh, five patriarchates. But let's continue. So the, 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 the reason we bring up the patriarchates in this connection is because as long as these ancient patriarchates, these important patriarchates, had their own liturgical right, 
that's something that's of antiquity and it was respected, right? Nobody questioned these things. Nobody questioned the, the, the liturgical variation from patriarchate to patriarchate. So even in these earliest times, it was generally believed that the Roman liturgy had its origins in the time of the apostles. Differences between the liturgies of the different patriarchates were not perceived as problematic as these patriarchates trace themselves back to the different apostles as the founders of their own traditions. By the way, Rome, Alexandria, uh, and Antioch all trace themselves back uh, to St. Peter, either in person or by delegation, because the first bishop of Rome was St. Peter. The first bi- first bishop of uh, Antioch, Antioch, to go out of order here, was St. Peter. The first bishop of Alexandria was St. Mark, the disciple of St. Peter. So those three early, most ancient patriarchates were all founded either directly in person or um, by proxy, if you will, through a disciple uh, by St. Peter himself. So that's very important as well. Um, much stronger was, let's see, okay, because they had the apostles as their founders, uh, then they had, you know, you, they had authentic traditions. That's the gist of what he's saying. Much stronger was the awareness of the basic structure common to all the liturgies, a strong indication that the Eucharist had already received its essential form in the circle of the apostles before they separated for their missionary work in all three continents known at that time. 